All right, so last week, just giving you a little bit of recap, last week we compared the lives of two men. It was kind of a compare and contrast session. We saw the decline of Israel's first king, Saul, and we saw the rising up of his son, his firstborn, Jonathan. And the fear and faith um, dynamic that was at play was very clear in last week's text. Saul is classified or characterized as a man of fear, and his son Jonathan is a man of great faith. So Jonathan was portraying the kind of belief and disposition that his father should have, but failed to do. And we also saw judgment come down from God through his prophet Samuel to Saul last week. And Saul was disqualified from being Israel's king. Even though he would serve for several more decades, God was going to anoint a new king in Israel, and we'll meet that king next week. But last week we saw that Saul was disqualified because he disregarded the command of the Lord, and he disregarded the word or the revelation of the Lord. Now, if you're new to our study, we have as our background Deuteronomy chapter 28. So here's how it goes. Just listen carefully. I'm just going to summarize it for you. I need a little response. Okay, we're going to get warmed up this morning. Obey the voice of the Lord or listen to the voice of the Lord and... Okay, response means you respond. Okay? <laughs> and you live. Disobey or disregard the voice of the Lord and die miserably. That's right. That's the natural consequences of sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God very clearly revealed his will. Do these things and you will live. If you don't do them, the natural consequence of your sin is death. So when we, when we look at Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, those books, this is Israel's history told in light of those promises made in Deuteronomy 28. So if you're new this morning, read Deuteronomy 28 this week. It won't be real encouraging to you, but it'll give you the necessary background for our study. All right, so this week we're going to look at one of the saddest episodes in King Saul's life, but this is what's going to pave the way for the man after God's own heart that we'll meet next week. So we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Today. Now, before we get there, I want to tell you a story. I'm a salesman, right? I, I've just, I've always been a salesman. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm, I'm just a lay person here filling the pulpit. I have a, a 40, 50 hour a week job outside the church. I'm a salesman. I work for a local home builder. But I've always been a salesman, even when I was a little kid. I remember we'd get candy bars on my Little League team. We'd have to sell these candy bars in order to raise money, and I loved doing that. I would go canvas the neighborhood, and within about an hour, I'd sell all my candy bar. Then I'd come back to the house, and there's my big brother. His name's Tim. We all call him T. He's just a giant, so he gets his own letter of the alphabet. <laughs> and I say, T, how many did you sell? And he's, well, I one or two. So I'd take his box, and I'd go sell it. I just love to sell things. But I remember one incident in particular where I told a lie in order to get the sale. And it cost me more than I got in return. So here's what happened. I was seven years old. My family moved to a new neighborhood. And we were just getting settled in, and I was meeting the other boys in the neighborhood. And I still remember this guy. His name was Sean Murphy, a couple years older than me, same age as my brother. And I'm talking with Sean, and it's a Friday. And I say, hey, Sean, what are you doing this weekend? 
He says, man, I'm going to start a lawn mowing business. And so my entrepreneurial mind gets going. And I said, well, that, that sounds cool. You know, is there money in that? He says, yeah, tons. Tons. I use my dad's mower, my dad's gas, and I keep all the money. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, uh, no startup costs, pure profit. This is a great business model. So I tell Sean, hey man, I can't play today, I, I gotta go do something. So I go home and I start my own lawn mowing business, right? And I start pounding the pavement to undercut the new guy. I gotta get out there on Friday before he gets out there on Saturday. So I start knocking on doors. And I still remember the house directly across from ours. This guy had a massive lawn, he had a big piece of property. And um, he was an older man, he lived all by himself. Um, and I, I knocked on his door, and he answered, and I offered the services of my new business. Now, the Lord taught me a huge lesson through this incident, because the, the timing of things just worked out perfectly. So, I offer my business services to this guy, and he says, yeah, I mean, absolutely, I, I need to do that. The person who previously mowed my lawn moved. And it's the middle of summer, it's hot, I have nobody to mow my lawn, and I, I seem to recall he was in his 80s or something, he was an older man, so he couldn't do it himself. This is called supply and demand. So suddenly my rates went up, right? I had the supply, he had the demand, he said, son, what do you charge? And back then, I charged the astronomical cost, I think, I, I think it was $15 to mow this guy's lawn. Now today that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when I was a kid, 15 bucks? That was way overpriced, but he didn't have anybody else. I should have been more compassionate, but I was a little punk, and he agreed to my price. And he said, when can you come back and mow? I said, I'll be back tomorrow around lunch. So I go home, very pleased with myself, my first business venture, my first sale in that business venture, but I had a problem. I didn't even know how to start a lawnmower. How hard can it be, right? So I'm walking back to my house. I go to my dad's storage shed. I pull out the mower. I was a little guy. When I was seven, I was not very big. I couldn't even push the thing, and I didn't know how to start it. But I had a plan. I had a big brother, right? So I go to T. I said, T, I've lined up some work for you. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? I said, hey, I found this guy who's going to pay you $5 to mow his lawn, right? And my brother agrees, so I had my first underpaid employee, right? <laughs> so I said, hey, T, do you know how to mow a lawn? He's like, I, I've never mowed a lawn. So let's go, out and, let's go out and try. So he's big enough. He can push my dad's mower, but he doesn't know how to get it going. Like, well, we'll worry about that tomorrow, okay? So we just spend the rest of our summer day playing. Well, tomorrow comes. It's about lunchtime, and... I've got this deal that I've got to do. So I know I'm in trouble, so I go to my dad. I said, uh, I said, Dad, you'll be proud of me. I started a business, and I've got my first employee, but we need a little training. He's like, well, what's going on? I said, Dad, I, I, I lined up a job to mow a lawn this afternoon after lunch. And T's going to mow it, but we don't know how to mow a lawn. My dad's kind of doing one of all right, so we go out and we practice in our own lawn, and we're chunking the grass. I can't push it. My brother's kind of messing things up, but it's time to mow this lawn. 
So my dad takes me over to this old man's house, and he makes me confess my lie to this guy. This guy was depending on me. So my dad says to this man, he says, sir, don't worry. We are going to mow your lawn today. So my dad made my brother and I sit on our back lawn and watch him the entire time with no water or bathroom breaks mow this guy's lawn. My dad did it. Afterwards, the man came out to pay my dad, and my dad refused payment. My dad went back inside, and here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, and this is what we're going to see in our text this morning and talk about throughout the sermon. Sin carries consequences, and it very rarely, if ever, only affects you. Sin almost always affects other people. And this is how my lie affected our family. My dad was a pastor in a very small town in a rural church, and the church couldn't pay him very much money, so he had to work three jobs. He pastored as much as he could during the week and on Sunday. On Saturday, he drove charter buses to earn extra money, and on the uh, weekdays in the evenings, he would clean office buildings and classrooms. So my dad went and did my job, came home, took a shower, and went to work. So here's all the people affected by my lie. The old man still didn't have a reliable lawn mowing service when he needed it the most, although Sean Murphy picked him up the following day. But at that time, he didn't have it. My dad lost out on his sermon prep time and on his family time. My brother and I lost out on our time with our dad, and we lost an entire Saturday. My mom lost out on her time with her husband, and my sister lost out on her time with her dad. Now, this seems like kind of a a silly example from childhood, but as adults, can we not think of times when we have been dishonest or when we have sinned and it's affected a multitude of other people? If we're being honest with ourselves, we can. This is one of those kind of uncomfortable Sundays where we have to talk about sin. We don't do that a lot in the church anymore. Typically, Sundays are upbeat and positive, and for good reason. We're celebrating Christ's resurrection and his forgiveness. But every now and then, we need to deal with sin. And that's what we're going to do today. So, look in your text with me. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's get going. This is what the Lord says. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel, the prophet, this is God's guy talking to the king. Samuel says to Saul, I am the one that the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Don't spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkey. I want total destruction. And we look at this and we say, man, that's really brutal. What happened there? What's the background? What's going on that God calls for the destruction of a people group? So let's work our way through that paragraph and we'll get to the answer to that question. Notice the position here. It goes like this. God, prophet, king, and then the people. God, prophet, king, people. This is what King Saul failed to remember. It wasn't him on top. It was God, prophet, king, 
people. Samuel very clearly lays that out, and in a few verses, we're going to see where that gets reversed. So Samuel lays out how this relationship is supposed to go, and what does he say at the end of verse 1? Listen now to the message of the Lord. Listen to the voice of God and live. Listen to the voice of God and live. Now, it's interesting. In verse 2, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. That phrase there is Yahweh of the armies. Yahweh of the armies. The Lord of hosts, your Bibles might say. This is what that's referring to. You have this image of God serving as the king over all. And he's in control both of the heavenly armies and of Israel's armies. Saul isn't. It's the Lord of the armies, the God of all. He's in control. He will fight for his people and come to rescue them on their behalf. So he's telling his prophet to tell the king, this is the mission I have for you. I'm going to fight with you. This is the Lord of the armies who's got your back. So he's calling for the punishment of the Amalekites. So here's what happened. When Israel was coming out of slavery in Egypt and going north to take possession of the promised land that God promised to give them, the Amalekites attacked the people of God. Now, the Amalekites were kind of a smaller clan. They were a group of raiders and marauders. They would attack a people group and just kill everybody and plunder them. So what we hear about when they attack Israel is that they attacked those who were lagging behind. Okay, so imagine this. You have this huge migration of people leaving Egypt, going north to the Promised Land. Who lags behind in this great migration of people? Who's on the back of that massive migration? Little kids, their moms, people who are sick, the nurses attending to the sick people, and the elderly. Real courageous, Amalekites. The tough guys, the armies, the healthy people, they're all in the middle or in the front, pressing north, protecting the people. And in the back are the stragglers. It's all the weak people in the nation. So the Amalekites attack the weak people. They kill a bunch of them. They take the baggage. They take the goods. And they head out. And this is what God says in the book of Exodus. You can take a look uh, this week during uh, just your reading time. Exodus chapter 17 is where this occurs. This is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua, who's going to be leading the nation, hears it. Because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Amalek, the leader of the Amalekites. He's the one who attacked the people of Israel. A little bit later, we see this in the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy is an interesting book. As Israel is going to take possession of the promised land, God rehearses everything in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second law. Deuteronomos, second law. It's kind of a, an abbreviation of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's all sort of reviewed for the people. So Deuteronomy is the review book. And this is what God says in the review book before they go take possession of the land. He says this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So in our study, we talked about this earlier. Fighting in this time period was my God versus your God. It was deity warfare. All right? 
And so the Amalekites had no fear of Israel's God. God says this, When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land that he is giving you, and you possess this land as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. All right? So when you get into the promised land, and you've got rest, and you're settled, and you're established, you've got to go after Amalek. God has given the people a prophecy that one day he will destroy that people for destroying his people. Are you tracking with me? So we get back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we see this coming true. And God is saying through his prophet to the king, you're my man. You're the one who's going to fulfill this prophecy. These people had no fear of me, and they killed my people. They will be punished for it. All right, let's continue on in our study. Verse chapter, or, uh, chapter 15, verse 4. So, Saul summons the men and he musters them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. 210,000 soldiers to go after Amalek. And Saul goes to the city of Amalek and he sets an ambush in the ravine. And this is interesting, verse 6. Then he says to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I don't, uh, don't destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away. Okay, what? The Kenites? This is interesting. The Kenites are, let me make sure I get this right. The Kenites are Moses' father-in-law's people. Way back when all this stuff went down, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they were actually nice to Israel. They later joined forces and, and lived with the Amalekites. But when Israel needed their help the most, they helped them. So to return the favor, Saul goes to them and he says, hey, you showed us kindness. We're going to come. We're going to exact revenge on the Amalekites. You guys go away and be saved. And they do. So here we go now. Verse 7. 7 to 9. Here's the kicker. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Kind of. Verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Obedience or disobedience? Partial obedience is still disobedience. Sin carries consequences. And they almost always affect other people. I want to tell you another story. This one you've probably heard before. Who here has read the book of Esther? The book of Esther. Esther's a great book, one of my most favorite books in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a brief summary. There was this king who had a really great name, Ahasuerus. Say Ahasuerus. Isn't that a great name? We know him better by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Also an awesome name. Say Xerxes. Get those names in your brain. He was the king of Persia. And at that time, so this is a couple hundred years down the road, there's a lot of Israelites who were taken captive and they were living in his kingdom. Well, there was one um, particular occasion to where he threw this big feast and he wanted his queen, Vashti, to come 
parade herself wearing only a crown, that's it, in front of all of his guests so that the king could show off her beauty. Classy move, Xerxes. The queen, who had some class, refused. This angered the king. So he removed from, uh, Vashti from being queen, and he went on this big search to find a new queen. Okay? Now, there was this Jew who lived and served in Xerxes' uh, citadel. His name was Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin. Her name was Esther. Esther was favored by King Xerxes, and she eventually became the new queen. Cool. Now, she was Jewish. The king didn't know that. At the end of the story, spoiler alert, she's going to rescue the Jewish people. Okay? Now, something happens in between. We meet this other guy. His name is Haman. Okay? His name is Haman. Haman gets elevated to this high status, and he's going throughout the city, and everybody's bowing down to him. Except Mordecai. So now he hates Mordecai. He wants to kill Mordecai and destroy all the Jews. And this is what the book is about. So let me just read something that I think is kind of interesting, and this is going to make our point as we work our way through the text. The book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. What we learned earlier in our study is that Benjamin was the most despised of all the tribes. So here we have a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Mordecai. Listen to the lineage. Son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. We met Kish back in chapter 9. Remember his son lost a big group of donkeys? Somehow in the desert? <laughs> Kish is Saul's dad. What's interesting to me is that in this lineage, they don't mention Israel's first king. You would think that if you were related to Israel's first king, you would say, Saul. Nope. They say Benjamin. And they say Kish, Saul's dad. Okay, well, the next chapter... Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. So here goes Haman, rising up the ladder. He was an Agagite. You left one man alive, Saul? No, actually we learn later on in 1 Samuel that a couple hundred Amalekites escaped. Their name gets changed from Amalekites to Agagites because it was the family of Agag that survived. So yeah, most of the Amalekites died except this one family, the Agagites. And here's what we see. Saul's disobedience hundreds of years prior to this nearly brings about the extinction of the Jewish people a few centuries later. So the book of Esther, then, is a resolution to this ancient feud all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, um, I don't see her in here. This, oh, yeah, I do. So Ruthanna asked a great question a couple of weeks ago. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's like a prestigious thing. Well, we know that the Benjamites were not a prestigious people, so how did their prestige get restored? It was in the book of Esther that it happened. 
So the Benjamites are the ones who end up saving the nation of Israel, and they go from the least among all the tribes back up to this elevated position. And now we have the Feast of Purim that the Jews celebrate every year to this day, which is a hallmark of God saving his people. But in this book, Mordecai functions as Saul's replacement. Mordecai does what has to be done for his people, whereas Saul does not. So here's what we see. Sin carries consequences, and those consequences almost always affect other people. Here in this text, he fails to obey the clearly revealed word of the Lord, and his people, the entire nation of Israel, almost die a few hundred years later. That's what the book of Esther is all about. Let's keep going in our text. Let's pick it up in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. He said this, I regret that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and he's not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel's anger reflects God's disposition. God is angry with the king and the prophet is angry with the king. So here's what happens, verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul, but he was told this. Saul has gone to one of our major cities, to Carmel. There, he has set up a monument in his own honor. And he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. What? Saul goes to a prominent city that everybody has to pass through, and he sets up a monument to himself to commemorate his victory? Do you guys remember way back, I think it was in chapter 4, when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant? What's the first thing they did? They took it to the house of their god, Dagon, to thank their god for giving them victory in battle. This was the way the mindset worked. We have a victory in battle, we thank our god, because our god gave us the victory. The pagan people who didn't know Yahweh got it right, this one who's a servant of Yahweh gets it completely wrong. He sets up a monument to himself, he honors himself before he ever honors God. Well, how do we know that? In a few verses, we're going to see that they spared some animals to sacrifice to God. They're still alive. He hasn't even thanked God yet. So here's what happens. Verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, have you? Really? Then what is, I love this line. Then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Didn't God say destroy everything? Saul answered, oh, look, he's blame shifting. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. And they spared the best of the sheep and of the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. From here on out, Saul refers to Yahweh as somebody else's God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, verse 16. That wake you up? Samuel said to Saul, 
let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul, thinking he's in good standing, says, yeah, let me, let me know. What's he say? Verse 17, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you were a Benjamite. Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you the king over his people. And he sent you on a mission. Fulfill this prophecy. Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you wipe them out. You are the fulfillment of God's word spoken a few hundred years ago. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And here's Saul's reply. But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission that the Lord assigned me. Okay, that part's true. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. No, you didn't. You let a couple hundred go. Oh, and then look at this. And I brought back their king, Agag. Well, then you didn't completely destroy them. The soldiers, not me, I'm blame shifting. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. You think God wants that? What did God say at the beginning? I don't want any of the animals. Destroy everything. This is judgment on a people for attacking my kids and the women in my nation and the sick people that I care for and their nurses who care for them and the elderly, the honored, the revered. They killed my people. Exact judgment. And here's Samuel's reply. Let me just sum it up for you in the biggest font I could fit on the screen. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obedience? No. Listen, if you would have just obeyed, we wouldn't need sin offerings. To obey is better than sacrifice. Because it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. God doesn't care about the externals. We tend to get wrapped up in and our own righteousness and how we portray our... God doesn't care about that stuff. How's your heart? Same thing with the king. How's your heart, Saul? I don't want sacrifices. I want obedience. Verse 23, verse 23, rebellion is like the sin of divination. Arrogance like the evil of idolatry. What do you mean? God hates those things. That's what he means. Here's the kicker. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, listen to the voice of God and live, disobey or disregard the voice of God and miserably. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Verse 24, Saul says to the prophet, okay, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was... I was afraid. Saul fears the kingship. Saul fears his family. Saul fears the Philistines. Saul fears the Lord. Saul fears Samuel. Saul fears his army. Saul fe uh, fears David. We're going to see beginning next week, he makes 14 attempts on David's life. In every episode where we see King Saul, he's associated with the emotion of fear. He's a man of fear. I was afraid of my own army. So I gave in to them. I beg you, forgive my sins and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. This is key. The prophet needs to accompany the king. If the prophet does not go with the king, what does that communicate to the army? 
the army now sees, man, there's a rift between God and king. That means that God's not going to bless us and fight on our behalf when we go into battle. The king needs the prophet to come with him, otherwise the army loses confidence. So he says, come back with me. But Samuel says to him, I'm not going to go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord. Whose word did he listen to? The voice of man. He's rejected the voice of God in favor of the voice of man. He says, you've rejected the voice of God. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So this is interesting. Samuel turns to leave. And Saul catches a hold of his robe in order to get him. And he tears his robe trying to pull him back. Verse 28. Samuel says to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, one who's better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. This is interesting in verse 28. He says, one who's better than you. Again, we're not talking about external righteousness. What we saw last week is that this one better than you is described as a man after God's own heart. And that's set in contrast to who Saul is. Saul is a king like all the other nations have. He doesn't know God. This king who is coming, he's no better than Saul. If you still like David, wait till we're done. He's not a good guy. But, but, he knows the Lord and he repents. He truly repents. Not so with Saul. So the one better than you isn't, oh, David's this great guy who's super righteous. No, he's a wretch and a murderer and an adulterer. The psalm that we read this morning, those were David's words out of Psalm 51, repenting for his sin. That's why he's better. It has to do with the heart. Verse 30, Saul replies, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Go back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. So Samuel goes back with Saul and Saul worships the Lord. Now the prophet has to make atonement for the king. He's got to offer sacrifices on the king's behalf. The prophet agrees to go with him because Saul called his sin, sin. He agreed with God that what he did was sin. It's the same thing in our lives. We call our sin, sin. We agree with God about it. Now here's one of my just absolute favorite couple of verses in all the Bible. Verse 32. The prophet Samuel says, Bring me Agag king of the Amalekites. Now this next phrase is a little bit tricky in Hebrew. Let's talk about it. It says, Agag came to him, some versions say, in chains, other versions say, cheerfully. Hebrew's hard, okay? That little word there, we're not exactly sure exactly how to render it, but both senses of that word are true. The king came to the prophet in chains, he was a prisoner of war, so he was bound, but he also comes to him cheerfully. And we know he came to him cheerfully, because look at the next line. He thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. He was standing before a prophet and not an executioner. He's thinking, I'm going to live, they're going to spare me. They might make me some sort of a political prisoner, but I'm all right. Verse 33. But Samuel said, as your sword, parentheses, read this there, as your sword has made Israelite women childless, 
Israelite women, childless, you killed our babies, you killed our infants, you killed our women, you killed our sick, you killed our elderly. As your sword has killed people and made our women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. I bet he's not feeling good now. And then look at this verse. This is like, you know, Braveheart gladiator verse right here. Come on, guys, you'll love this one. Then Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Oh. Some of your Bibles say he hewed him to pieces. Yuck. Sin carries consequences, and they almost always affect other people. Who did Saul's sin affect? Well, it affected him. First of all, he lost the kingship. What does that mean for his family? Now, probably the most righteous man in the land, his son Jonathan, doesn't get to be king. And in fact, what we'll see in 2 Samuel is that a whole but Let me just ask this question. Historically, when a new family takes power and an old family is still around, what happens to the old family? Uh-huh. Yeah, they die. They get killed. Oh, David wouldn't do that. Yeah, 2 Samuel, right? We'll get there. Saul's disobedience leads to his own disqualification and loss of the kingdom. It means Jonathan doesn't get to be king. It means that their family members, just in a couple of decades, a lot of them are going to die. Not only that, but now you have the prophet, God's man, who is now a murderer in essence. At the end of his career, at the end of his life, he had to kill a man because the king disobeyed the Lord. And then we see in the book of Esther a couple hundred years later, almost the entire nation is wiped out because of one man's sin. One man's sin. Sin is hideous. It's cancerous. It's pervasive. It gets in us and it just oozes out. And it affects everything. And I fear that oftentimes as believers, we don't really take it that seriously. This is what Christ died for. Our sin doesn't affect just us. God's son had to be put to death in order to take care of our sin problem. I have two things I want you to walk away with this morning. Two purposes to this message on sin. Number one, it's a challenge to you to deal with and eradicate the own, your, your own sin, the sin in your life. See, I fear that as Christians, sometimes we think, well, you know, Jesus has already forgiven me, so what's the big deal, right? No matter what I do, the cross took care of it, right? That's what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. He says, hey, do we just keep on sinning because we're forgiven? And then in Greek, he gives a big old, no way! Of course not! I mean, that's ludicrous. You know how much you've been forgiven? The response to that is obedience. And we can obey because Christ has forgiven us. The response isn't, oh, I'm forgiven, let's send some more. My challenge to you is identify those areas of sin and get rid of them because they don't affect just you. It's going to affect your kids, your friends, your coworkers. It's going to get into your life and infest and kill. Identify the areas of sin in your life and eradicate it. Secondly, and we'll close with this, 
I want this to serve as a deterrent to sin. The next time you're tempted to sin, think about the long-term ramifications of what you're about to do. Sin carries consequences, and they almost always affect other people. Is it worth it? Usually on Sunday mornings, it's encouraging and it's upbeat, and that should be the point of Sunday morning. We're celebrating what God did through his son by resurrecting him from the dead and giving us hope forever and forgiveness from sins. But I believe that the light of Christ is seen most brilliantly against the backdrop of the reality that we find ourselves in as sinful people. To understand the magnitude of his death and resurrection, we need to see ourselves for who we are and who we are apart from him. Now, praise God that we have him and that we are a forgiven people. But that does not absolve us from the responsibility to deal with our sin and to deal with it effectively. That's my challenge to you, my family, this morning. Let's be serious about our sin and lean wholly on Christ for his forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Man, no matter how badly we mess up in our short-sightedness and our inability to look ahead and see the consequences of our sin, you are there and you offer forgiveness through your son. God, I pray that it wouldn't get to that point. God, you've given us your Holy Spirit who is powerful. We are able to resist sin, able to resist temptation. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who thinks through the consequences of our actions. God, made this message this morning, the life and disqualification of Saul, serve as a deterrent to sin. God, I pray that you'd help us to see sin as you see it, something hideous and pervasive that needs to be dealt with. God, we thank you for finally and ultimately dealing with it through your Son. Help us to cling to the cross, for that is our one and only hope. We love you. We thank you for loving us. Help us to trust in you more. In your Son's powerful name that we pray. Amen. Let's close in worship.